And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, please. I want to read through this whole chapter. Acts in chapter 14, please. Hear the word of God. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. For the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying, Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Uh, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out men why are you doing these things we also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them in past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even these words, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they they remained no little time with the disciples." Now, the question as we begin is, what do we see here? And, and the answer in very general terms is that we see the, the outworking of the purpose that Luke had given to us 
initially, and that is that we'd see the gospel go forth. As we begin in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives this word to his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And as we work our way through the book of Acts, we see that we see that happening. We see the gospel spread. We see the church being built. We see the kingdom of God being manifested among people. Uh, we see uh, the gospel spreading uh, in, in various places. In this passage, for instance, in, in verse 1 of chapter 14, uh, we read of them speaking in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. And in verse 3, they spoke boldly for the Lord. Um, then we uh, uh, see it uh, again uh, in verse 7 as they continued to preach the gospel um, and then later in Derby in verse 20 when they went there they continued to preach the gospel there we see the, the uh, church being built as more people come to faith as we read in verse 2 that they, uh, that they believed uh, we see the church coming together at the, very, uh, at the very end of this chapter in two places when Paul sort of goes back and meets with the churches and then when he makes his way back to Antioch from which he began uh, the church gathers we see the kingdom of God being manifest in all of this because we see the rule of Christ over this whole situation we see it as people come to faith we see it as they continue to proclaim the word boldly we see it in the miracles that took place here uh, so we see all of this all of this happening but in these chapters in Acts we see it in a little different way than we did as the book of Acts first began uh, early on, we saw the gospel begin to spread by the time we hit chapter 7 and chapter 8, for instance. But there it seemed to be more reactionary. There it seemed to be more in reaction to persecution or re reaction to a particular vision that Peter saw that said to go to the household of Cornelius. But now it seems to be more systematic that, that God has called out particular ones, Paul and Barnabas in this particular case, in the beginning of chapter 13. And he says, I want you to go out. And, and so we, we see their travels. I, I gave you this little map. Uh, it may help some just to realize these are real places. Um, they began in, yeah, I should have given you numbers, I suppose. Uh, number one would be uh, Antioch in, to the right, <laughs> to, the, to the east, Syrian Antioch is where they began. And you can tell they went down to the island of Cyprus and a couple of spots there up to Perga and then to Pisidian Antioch. You may complain that there are two Antiochs. But that's only because you haven't driven through Kansas or the United States of America and realized there's only 73 names for cities uh, in all of our country. Everywhere you go, it's the same names over and over again. There's Cleveland and Tennessee and Ohio, all over the place. So anyway, so don't be too uppity about that. Uh, so this Pisidian Antioch, uh, they go there and then to Iconium where we find our place today and then through Derby. And then notice the arrows sort of go both ways in Galatia and Pisidia uh, because Paul then doubles back makes his way back to Perga and then back to Syrian Antioch, or, I'm sorry, yeah, Syrian Antioch from whence they began their trip. So that's just sort of a little travelogue on where we're headed. But it appears as if the same kinds of things happen on this part of the trip that's happened on the other part of the trip and we'll find happening continually in the trips that Paul takes, regardless of who he's with. And that is the gospel is preached and there's a passionate reaction. There's a passionate reaction on two ends at least. One is that some believe, and the other end that some come against him in very radical kinds of ways. And we see that uh, here uh, in Iconium. It says, now they um, came together, they went into the synagogue, they spoke in such a way, uh, boldly and truthfully, such a way and powerfully that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. They poisoned their minds. Uh, 
there is that negative reaction to the gospel. And that negative reaction to the gospel comes because of the offense of the cross. Because the cross points to us and reminds us that, that we need someone to save us. That we live in rebellion against God. And that rebellion against God leads to his judgment upon us. And so that comes uh, into people's minds. And if the Holy Spirit isn't at work in them in a way to enable them to receive that and embrace that, then it's offensive to them. As Jesus said, and John writes for us in chapter 3 of his gospel, that men love darkness rather than light. And so when the light comes and that darkness is exposed, there's an offense taken to that. How dare you point this out? How dare you say that this is wrong? And therefore there comes a opposition and it can be quite violent. You remember when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, it's a verse I think about a lot. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says that Satan is blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you may ask the question, well, how does he do that? How does Satan blind people's eyes? And it may be from some sort of inside work we don't know exactly, but we know it comes through an outside work that simply confirms the sinfulness of human beings. And we see it here as they come to poison that's a work of the evil one, to poison people's minds. And so they come to contradict Paul in whatever ways that they could come to say, no, what he's saying isn't true. You're really all right. You really can do it. You really don't need this Savior Jesus. And there's something that appeals in that to say, oh, I really am okay. I really haven't done wrong. I really haven't sinned against God at least to such a degree that I would need this Savior Jesus. I really can redeem myself. I really can make this right on my own. And so it's that kind of poisoning that comes against the gospel and that kind of poisoning that comes even against those who share the gospel, as in this case, Paul and Barnabas. Now you might think that that would discourage Paul and Barnabas a great deal so that they would leave. But notice the next verse 3. So they remained for a long time. And what strikes me as I come to this passage is faithfulness. What strikes me as I come to this passage is the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas to continue to be about the work of Christ and also then the faithfulness to which they call us, to which Paul calls us, to which their example just sort of magnifies to us. Because not only as we'll find their, their faithfulness throughout this chapter, but notice in verse 22, as Paul returns, uh, he strengthens the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That is, he wants them to continue to be faithful, not to fall away. And so faithfulness kind of, kind of pours through this chapter. And so as, as we ask the question, how is it that God's going to fulfill his purpose? How is it that the gospel's going to go to the ends of the earth? The answer is that he's going to be faithful to his people enabling them to be faithful to him. So what we should see in the, in the lives of believers is, is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the call of God, faithfulness to the work of Christ, faithfulness to the mission to which he calls us, faithful to, to grow up in him and to be conformed to the image of Christ and to take the message of the gospel to people in all kinds of situations. And so Paul and Barnabas, even though they didn't get uh, a perfectly... Um, a congenial response. Some believed, but others didn't. And the ones who didn't seemed to come at them with a great vengeance. They continued to speak boldly uh, for the Lord. Now, God was gracious 
to, to provide miracles in this setting to affirm, confirm his word. He does that sometimes, doesn't do that other times. Here he, he did it. But still again, it wasn't the miracles that changed people's minds and changed people's hearts. John Calvin once said that people are very poor interpreters of the works of God. Because you see, when we see them, unless the Holy Spirit has changed our hearts to see them as from God and good, we, we simply, we simply uh, process them through unregenerate, unborn again, unholy minds and we don't see God in them it was amazing that there were people who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead and still did not believe it's bigger than that it's bigger than just a miracle that has to take place for us to see so the miracles happened some believed some didn't believe it confirmed the word of the apostles however and then something happened and so that the Gentiles and Jews who were unbelievers got together and they plotted against Paul and Barnabas. They were going to mistreat them and stone them. And so Paul and Barnabas then at that point took the advice of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, when they persecute, you leave. And go to another city and share it there. And so you get the sense that they, they knew that word and they said they're going to kill us. So rather than be killed, let's move on to the next city, which they did. So they come to Lystra. Very reasonable response to the situation there. So they come to Lystra. Uh, and, and there they preach the gospel again. So, so they, 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 they're not discouraged. So they continue to preach the gospel. They continue on in this, this, this faithfulness. Paul sees this person. He looks as if he believes, has faith to be healed. So Paul uh, speaks to him to get up. It reminds us a great deal of what took place in Acts chapter 3 with Peter. When Peter and John see this man by the gate. And so you get the sense that Luke is saying, look, Paul is, is the Gentile gospel person to Peter uh, one isn't greater than the other they both have the very power of God with them and Peter can be involved in these kinds of miracles of healing people that are born lame and, and, and Paul can as well and so, so God affirms Paul's work there and so we, we see it uh, and then something amazing happens they begin to worship uh, Paul and Barnabas again they saw this miracle and they processed it through uh, their own culture uh, and, and if you would read, and I wouldn't expect you to because I didn't until I was looking up this passage and playing with it and studying about it and so forth and so on, and I came across an ancient myth that they would have known, that they knew well of, of Zeus and Hermes, gods in their minds, had come to this region of the world uh, some decades, centuries before Paul and Barnabas showed up on the scene. And the myth goes like this that they went around trying to find someone to take them in. And they went house to house, door to door, and no one would take them in until they came to this uh, home of this very poor family. And this poor family took them in. Next morning, they all awoke, and they took a walk, and they went up on the mountains. And when they looked back, they realized that all of that area had been flooded and everyone killed except for this one family that had taken in these Greek gods. And then these people who had taken them in received this beautiful temple to be their home. So that was in their minds. And so when they see Paul and, and Barnabas show back up, they're thinking, Zeus and Hermes, here they are again. We better be nice to them. We better, we better, we better worship them. We better, we better offer sacrifices to them. And so, so they do that. They come in and they begin to worship. And Paul is livid and he says, I'm just a guy. Don't do this. This is crazy. You've missed the point. 
And again, we realize it's easy to miss the point. You see, the gospel always needs a narrative, not just action. It always needs explanation. You know, the old line is that we should share the gospel, use words when necessary. It's necessary because we can mislead even by our best actions. Here was a great action. I mean, if you could do anything this afternoon that you could possibly do to help people, wouldn't it be cool to go to the hospital and go room by room and say, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, and then leave? I mean, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be able to do? Go into a hospice situation with a family grieving and walk in and say, get up, and that person get up, and everybody would be happy. But the question is, how would they interpret that? How would they understand that? Would they worship you? Would they thank you? Would they, would they think, well, we need to now duplicate what this person has been doing and, and just go on with that? Or this is a religious person, therefore we need to become religious like them and, and maybe someday we'll attain to this kind of power as well? There needs to always be a narrative. There needs to always be an explanation. The scriptures say to us that the heavens declare the glory of God, but we misread it. In fact, that was the very thing that happened to this group of people. Because Paul would come down to them and he would say to them in verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news which, uh, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And so he's saying, he's already preached the gospel to them, we know from, from uh, verses 7 and 8. But, but he's now bringing it home to them. And you'll notice that he uses a little different tact than he used in other places. When Paul goes to the synagogue and preaches, he preaches his way, as we noticed last week from chapter 13, he preaches his way through the Old Testament, which makes a tremendous amount of sense because he's talking to synagogued people. He's talking to people who know that. He's talking to people for whom that would make a great deal of sense. So when he talks about Abraham and he talks about Moses and he talks about David, they'd get it. they say, oh yes, now we see what you're doing is playing connect the dots for us and we're able to see that Jesus is the Messiah that's always been promised. But when he comes to a group of people who have no history with that at all, he'll, he'll, he'll give them that history over time. But at this point, he needs to find a place where he can grab a hold of them and connect with them. Not to distort the gospel, but to bring the gospel in. And the place that he can bring the gospel in is this idea that, that they must have had in their minds that, that, that God was and existed. Now they had the completely wrong concept of God. But he was saying to them, look, God has made everything. And you have been recipients of the blessing of God. This God about whom I've been telling you. And so, I want you to turn from all these things and worship that God because these blessings have come from Him. Paul writes to the church in Rome. There's a wonderful little sentence which says this. It is the kindness of God that is to lead us to repentance. Now, sadly, it doesn't. Sadly, we just take advantage of it as they did. We just presume upon it. We get up in the morning presuming on the kindness of God. We wake up in the morning presuming the next breath will come. We wake up in the morning presuming that, that the meal will come, that, that, that pleasant things will come in the context of our lives. And people can live their whole lives like that without ever acknowledging God, without ever bowing the knee to Him, without ever giving thanks. In fact, as Paul writes again in Romans chapter 1, he speaks of sin and he puts it like this, 
the people did not honor God nor give him thanks. Now, I've always read that and I've thought, is giving thanks that important? I mean, come on. Oh, yes. When it's an acknowledgement of the fact that we owe God everything, that everything is from him, that every blessing is from him, the next breath is from him, the next meal is ultimately from him. It isn't from our hands. We're completely dependent upon him. And Paul is appealing to them. He says, now turn away from all this other nonsense, these other vain gods that you think have provided something for you. They've given you nothing. You're just serving them out of fear. Look at the one who has blessed you with all good things. The food that you eat, the clothes that you wear, the places where you live, the breath that you breathe. And so he says, um, he hasn't, verse 17, He's not, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Um, but even these words could scarcely change them. We live, as you know, in a culture that knows not Abraham, that knows not Moses, that knows not David, that knows not the Old Testament narrative that knows not the truth of Jesus. There was a time, in fact, I was born into such a time. I was born in a time when people in America knew the biblical narrative. In fact, given my advanced age, uh, when I was in elementary school, we read the Bible uh, every morning, a passage. We said the Lord's Prayer every morning. I learned the 23rd Psalm and the Ten Commandments uh, and the Lord's Prayer in public school. That was not uncommon in those days. Um, everybody I knew knew somebody who went to church. They may not have gone to church themselves, but they knew somebody who did. There was a connection to church. And when people thought about a need to be spiritual, a need for God, they thought the Christian faith, they thought Jesus they thought Christian church. That no longer exists in the generation that's coming up. Oh, it exists in pockets, hopefully here amongst our kids. Uh, but but it, it doesn't exist as we go through our country. Uh, increasingly, there are people who grow up who, who know absolutely no one who has any affiliation with church at all. They have no clue what church people do other than the weird stuff that they read about in the newspaper in Newsweek or see on television. That, that's all they know of anything called church. And when they think of needing God in any way, shape, or form, they don't think Jesus. They don't think the God of the Christian faith. It just isn't in our culture anymore. In the old days, back when people knew the biblical narrative, you could talk them through it just like Moses did, or just like... Paul did when he went to the synagogue. But, but we can't do that now. They simply don't have a clue. We really are post-Christian. Not that we were ever Christian in, in, the, in the real sense, but we're post-Christianized. And we have to do it probably differently. We can't just simply call people to repentance and expect them to come. We can't put a sign out and expect people to show up when they have a need. Because now when they have needs, they don't think of Jesus. They don't think Christian faith. Uh, they think Buddhist. They think Muslim. They think something on their own. 
And it's amazing in our country that as we read surveys, it appears as if people identify themselves as craving a spirituality and seeking some sort of spiritual dimension, this sort of sense of transcendence. I was flipping channels the other day and, and saw a person that I wanted to listen to because I listened to his music, a guy named Eric Clapton. Forgive me, now you can pray for me more. But he was being interviewed by Larry King and, and, and so... I watched for a while, and, and, and as I knew, and anybody who knows him knows, he's, he's been addicted a great deal of his life to all kinds of things, and now he's not. He's, he's a recovering addict, as he would put it, as he should put it, and uh, Larry King asked him about that, and he says one of the things that helps him a great deal every day is that he prays every morning when he gets up. Now, I know his music, and I'm thinking, that's an interesting statement. And so Larry King says, well... You pray to God, and Eric Clapton says, I don't know who I pray to. Now, how odd that is for us, but how normal that is for everybody else. There's a sense of spirituality that says, I want to connect with something transcendent, something beyond myself. I recognize it's there. I don't know what it is, but it seems to help me when I just say these words in the morning. And it probably does, in some psychological, emotional sense, help him to get on only because God is kind and gracious and doesn't snuff out his life at that moment in time. He knows I want one more album. Um, but that's the way it is, you see, and how sad that is. And so we can't start with Abraham because they don't have a clue about Abraham. Somehow we have to explain to them that spirituality means a connection to Jesus. He's the one who brought the transcendent one close and personal to us. And spirituality means a work of the Holy Spirit within us in such a way that we can know God. And there are people throughout our country who need a sense of community because families and, and communities have been fragmented and such. thus they're seeking community in all kinds of places. There are all kinds of sub-communities everywhere, even in our own city. There's ethnic sub-communities. There's, there's, there's survivor communities, communities of breast cancer and other types of cancer survivors who meet together and share something in common, some sense of community together. Uh, there are affinity communities with sports and fantasy sports leagues and, and little leagues and all those kinds of things where people sort of band together in communities. There's career communities communities, all kinds of places where, where people are gathering together. They speak a common language. They understand a common need. And something is happening there. And yet we're the new community of God. We're the community of Christ. We're the ones who have real community because we know that it begins with a relationship with God and then it enables us to be a gracious, forgiving, kind, understanding, welcoming community one to another. And somehow we need to get into that and say, say, you want community. It can only be had in Christ. There are people seeking a great sense of, of personal uh, expression in their lives. And we see it played out in, 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 in what we would consider to be, what the Bible would consider to be a perverted sexuality. And, and yet for them, it's, it's a personal expression. And what we have to say is that there's real freedom in Christ to express oneself as a true, real human being in him. And on and on and on. We can't begin with Abraham anymore, as Paul evidences here. But to share in the context of where people are, not to change the gospel, Paul didn't change it at all. And the proof that he didn't change it is because at the end of the time, some believed and others took him out to kill him. And they left him for dead. And I don't know if you've ever 
contemplated a stoning and what a person would be like after being pummeled with rocks, what his nose would look like, what his cheekbones would look like, what his shoulders and arms would look like, what his back would look like, what his feet would look like, crushed in those various ways. And there he was, bloody, left for dead. His friends came to him, whether they knew he was being stoned at the time or not, or just found out about it and said, we better go get him out. We don't know. But they went to get him. And they picked him up. And it says, rather amazingly, the disciples gathered about him. He rose up and entered the city on the next day. You get the sense that that's just Luke's sort of very quick way of describing it. He doesn't give us a sense that a miracle took place and all of a sudden he was restored. Paul never gives the impression that those beatings and stonings and everything else didn't hurt and didn't leave their marks. But he went back into the city. You would think he'd say, I don't want to go back there. But he was faithful to God, and so he went back there in the midst of that. And then he went on to Derby and continued to preach the gospel. I mean, this is the classic, you know, sort of get back up on the horse kind of mentality. He got thrown from the horse, but I'm going to be a horse rider, so I better get back on the horse as quickly as possible. And so he does, and he gets back up. And then he begins to make his way through, as that little map told us. And as he makes his way through, back through, he goes back to the very places where some believed and some turned against him, even in violent kinds of ways. And notice what he says, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And here's what he did there. Strengthening the souls of the, of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, when it says that he was strengthening their souls, this is something Paul does. We'll come across this in a number of, uh, a number of times as we work our way through the book of Acts. Paul goes back through and he has this great desire to strengthen their souls. Now, that little word to strengthen, I think it would be best understood to mean um, to put a stake in the ground so that another can stand firm. I'm not a gardener, but I've seen gardeners, and, and I don't like them because they make my yard look really bad. But, um, but I've seen people put out plants, like tomato plants, and they put a little stick in the ground beside it, and they attach the tomato plant to the stick so that it won't flop over, so that it'll grow strong. And that's the image here. Paul's saying, I want to come alongside you. I want to stake you up in such a way that you won't fall over. And so when he comes to strengthen, he comes to do just that, to strengthen him like that. And what that tells us is that there's a tendency in us toward weakness. There's a need for us to be staked. And we need that help. We're easily people who flop and flop over. And there's all kinds of things that can come and come against our faith. There's the normal worries of the world that just beat against us. There's the temptations that come from the world as well. Jesus put it like this. He said, the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world. They just burden us. Uh, Riches deceive us. They give us the impression only had, if we only had more, we'd be fine, we'd be secure. Everything would be fine with our lives, we'd be happy. Our main problems is we're just not rich enough. If we were, everything would be great. And then the world comes to us and, and says, if only you had this, if only you had that. 
And then there are all kinds of worries that come. There's, there's physical worries as we get older. There's disease that comes at various stages of life and sometimes even completely unexpected in various stages of life. And they zap our strength and make us fatigue and, and we wonder, can we continue on in the faith? There's economic pressure. There's relationship pressure. There's loneliness that happens in, the, in, in people's lives. There's all kinds of pressure. In fact, one of the things I'm learning about getting older is there's just way more trouble than I ever knew. There really is. And the more relationships you have, the, the, the more connected to people you are, which takes place over a period of time, especially in a church like ours, is there's more and more people that you get to know and love, and you just realize that, that there's joy in that for sure. This isn't a downer, but there's a, a lot of difficulties in people's lives. It just happens over and over and over again. And we must, if we're going to really live, share in all of that. And so there's all these kinds of things, troubles that, that come our way that, that weaken that weaken faith. There's simply the sadness that can come with life. And so Paul says, I want to come and stake you up. I want to come and strengthen you. And one of the things that was his concern for them was that they would look at his life and become discouraged. For instance, he writes to the church in Thessalonica uh, like this in First Thessalonians. In chapter 3 he writes, Therefore when we could bear it no longer we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and Christ's co-worker and the gospel of Christ to establish, same kind of word there, strength and to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved or become unsettled by these afflictions. He was afraid that they would see his life and they would say, oh my goodness, we're losing. This Christianity thing is not going to make it. Look what happens. Paul, he's, who's more powerful in the spirit than any of us, goes out and they beat him up all the time and he's getting pummeled at every turn. Uh, we must be on the losing side and become discouraged in that. And so he wants to encourage them. So he says, for you yourselves know that we're destined for this. <laughs> I don't know how that helps. Uh, well, I do know how that helps, but it's just a funny kind of saying. He says, listen, this is the course of our lives. It's okay. Don't be worried. We know that we're going to get this everywhere we go. Just relax. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to them about your faith. I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. And our labor would be in vain. He's saying, I don't want you to, to miss it. This is the way life is. There are difficulties in it. And when they come, even if it's persecution on behalf of your faith, uh, don't become discouraged. This is simply the way life is. I want to strengthen you. And no doubt he came to strengthen them with the gospel, strengthen them with the word of God. For instance, in Romans in chapter 16, verse 25, he puts it like this kind of a benediction he says now to him that is to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and made known to all the nations he's saying I want to strengthen you according to his gospel which was the gospel I want you to strengthen you according to the gospel and so no doubt Paul would come back through these cities and he would talk about Jesus some more he would share with them the gospel. And you might say, well, I know the gospel. Jesus died in the cross for my sins. <sighs> Do you know what you say when you say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins? Do you notice, that, do you realize that that's like a lifetime of unpacking? 
It isn't just a, something I know. I've, I, now I can go on with my life. Now that I know that, I'm fine and dandy. No. We need to, as we've said so many times, preach the gospel to ourselves all the time. Because in just reflecting on Jesus died on the cross for my sins, we're reflecting our need. We're reflecting about our sin. We're reflecting about our hopelessness and helplessness apart from God's mercy. And we think about Jesus. We're thinking about everything good from God. We're thinking about the fact that he has redeemed us, has saved us, hasn't left us on, us, on our own. He's the very gracious one who's come to us. And so we need to, 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 to think upon these things, to think and meditate upon the fact that we're needy and hopeless and helpless. And yet God has come to us in Christ Jesus to show his love for us and that he's redeemed us and accepted us. And all that that means... And so Paul would come through and strengthen them with that very word. And then he went on like this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He's saying, listen, you know, heaven isn't downhill. This isn't a coast. This is real life. And it doesn't avoid you, real life. There's all kinds of things that will happen to you, just like all of humanity. Now, the difference between you and the rest is that you have Jesus. You have hope in Him. You have the very power of the Spirit within you. But don't think that becoming a Christian means that life is now going to become easy. Look around. If you're not experiencing difficulty, others are. One of the things that I find, and I say this very reverently, I hope pastorally, in a sensitive kind of way. What I often find is that when a family, a person experiences a tragedy, a deep difficulty in their own life, however that comes, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, or whatever, there's a, there's, there's a tendency at that moment to turn against God in the sense of saying, how could this happen to me? And Paul's saying here, it will happen to you. Be prepared for difficult things. And what I say, if you're going to be angry at God at things that, are, th- things that happen to you that are difficult and tragic even, if you, don't, don't wait till they happen to you. Get mad at them now. Because they're happening all over the place. They're just not happening to you. And yet when they happen to us, because, and I say this about me too, because of our self-centeredness, then we really begin to focus on these things. But they're happening all over our community, all over the world. People are experiencing very difficult things. You may not, but others are. And so Paul is wanting to strengthen us with this word that says, Your faithfulness is required. Your faithfulness is demanded even when trouble comes. And it will come. So don't be surprised. Don't be taken by surprise. And Jesus, when he was talking right before his crucifixion, met with his disciples and he told them that that it was likely that they would be hated on account of him. And then he went on and he says, I'm telling you these things so that you won't go astray. Meaning, when this happens, don't be shocked. 
When the difficult things of life come to us personally, don't be shocked. And again, I don't say this flippantly at all. But unemployment happens. Relationship troubles happen. Uh, Death happens. Uh, Disease happens. All those kinds of things that happen in life happen in life. And all those kinds of things that happen in life happen to you and me. Even persecution comes. And so Paul is saying, I want to strengthen you. I want you to know that when these things happen, they're not unusual. Peter says, don't be surprised. The fiery trials that come upon you. Don't be surprised at that. Don't, Don't be shocked as if to think that now because you've been accepted by God that life is easy. It's not. And he says, I'm calling you now to faithfulness in the midst of that. Continue to trust me. So you get the sense that Paul would say, now remember, Jesus said he'd never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said that he is the good shepherd. You won't have any want. He'll lead you ultimately in paths of righteousness. Follow him. And even though you go through the valley of the shadow of death, don't be afraid. He's with you. His rod and his staff will protect you and comfort you and bring you all the things that you need. In fact, even when your enemies are right up in front of you, whether that's a physical enemy, persecutor, whether it's the enemy of cancer, whether it's the enemy of death, whatever the enemy, the temptation, he says he will enable, he'll be enabled to give you peace so that he'll set a table before you right in the presence of your enemies. He'll anoint your head with oil. The joy of your very heart potentially will overflow because you know him and he's with you. Goodness and mercy will pursue you like a hound all the days of your life and they'll catch you and you'll know the very love and mercy of God in the midst of all of that. Paul said this is the real deal being a follower of Jesus. Be faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me and for us that you would enable us to be faithful. Give us grace to that end. Uh, Don't let us be surprised by stuff, good stuff or bad stuff, but let us continue to walk with you, knowing that what's important is that we glorify you, that we testify of you, that we bear witness of you. Because Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. And through you, we've come to God himself. And so we pray that that would be sufficient to sustain us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to our benediction is a long one, but a familiar one. The response to the benediction is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Now, when you say that, I expect that you believe it, uh, that there is no other way to acceptance by God other than through Jesus. And it gives you a way to be faithful, just for a moment to testify, for a moment to bear witness of him, and that being true. So check it against your real heart. Please receive this as God's benediction now. May the God of peace be brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Amen.